Having been born just that bit too late to enjoy Jerry Anderson's works as they originally heard, I had to discover most of his shows in reruns. Fortunately, back in the day of three-channel television, Anderson's shows had an eternal quality to them, and ITV would repeat his Super Marionation shows regularly. In my ITV region of Granada, one Anderson series in particular seemed to be screened regularly. Stingray. My recollection, which may be inaccurate, is that Stingray was on all the time as a kid. But this probably just means it heard over the summer holidays. This will have left the impression on my young mind that Stingray was on in perpetuity, as summer holidays stretched ahead like a long motorway when I was a kid. But for that length of time nowadays, simply to do nothing. According to Wikipedia, Stingray received a rerun on ITV in 1981, and this rings a few bells with me. I would at least have been at the perfect age to enjoy it then. Stingray was an immensely fun show, and, again, my memory of it is getting up in the morning, making whatever cereal I had for breakfast, probably cornflakes or Weetabix, and turning on the telly to enjoy the underwater adventures of the crew of Stingray versus their evil adversaries, the Aquafibians. I greatly enjoyed Stingray, not as much as Captain Scarlet, but definitely more than Joe 90. Of course, one of the things Stingray really had going for it was its opening title sequence. I've banged on before about how important opening sequences were to me as a kid, and how magical a truly great title sequence is, but Stingray really does have one of the best. Despite having made a number of productions before Stingray, this is the one where it all started to come together for Anderson and his imaginative and inventive crews. Whilst it does lack the polish of his later puppet shows, Stingray has a quality and an attention to detail that other shows, even those made for adult audiences, lacked. The great radio broadcaster Terry Wogan has noted the complete lack of regard for the intelligence of the viewer in Aaron Spelling productions, but Anderson always treated his teen and pre-teen audience with respect. It's why his shows still entertain audiences worldwide today. Anderson was also very much aware that you needed to grab your audience from the first frame, especially in the cutthroat world of commercial television. Stingray does this better than most shows of the time, and perhaps better than more modern series. Barry Gray's constant drum signalling the start of the action alongside a great opening narration tells us what we are in for. The music becomes the familiar Stingray theme, which works simply because it's the theme with the words Stingray over it. Who of us can't say we haven't sung the name of a show along to its theme? You know, Knight Rider, Knight Rider, the A-Team, the A-Team. Battlestar Galactica, Galactica, well that one's a bit of a stretch. Anyway, Anderson prefigured that, and the TV version of Batman, which would pull off the same trick. Stingray was the only lyric to the song, and yet if he hadn't done it, We'd have done it for him. The opening also starts in black and white before pulling a Wizard of Oz on the unsuspecting audience of the day and morphing into full colour, the first of its kind on British television. Such a big deal was made of this, in fact, that a caption appears on screen to inform the audience that Stingray was, in fact, filmed in vidi colour. Not just boring or regular colour, oh no, vidi colour. 
Lots of cool shots of Stingray zooming around the oceans and some trademark Anderson explosions ensured that generations of enraptured kids hid the channel changer so Dad couldn't put the news on. Although, to be fair, Dad was probably watching with them. Anderson and his editors were also well ahead of their times. This kind of fast-cutting, the blipvert-style approach to opening titles would only really enter the mainstream in the 1980s. Listen to this and let it raise your hackles. Stand by for action! We are about to launch Stingray! Anything can happen in the next half hour. Honestly, I don't know how any kid aged nine or so could not watch that and be immediately grabbed by it. Even as an audio clip, it's fucking brilliant. Stingray was Anderson's third major production after Fireball XL5 and Supercar and was first broadcast in 1964, well before most people would have even had colour televisions. As with The Adventures of Superman Over the Pond, the foresight of the producers to film in colour at this early stage meant the show had a longevity well beyond its production lifespan that the earlier black and white shows couldn't replicate. The first episode, simply entitled Stingray, is an already-in-progress production. By that I mean that WASP, the World Aquanautic Security Patrol, is already in existence, and the main characters, Troy, Tempest and Phones, are already the pilot and co-pilot, respectively, of Stingray. Like the later Sequest DSV, WASP's role is to patrol the ocean depths, protecting the world from any deadly threats that may arise. What these deadly threats were prior to the first episode isn't really mentioned, but presumably they had to stop Nemo the Submariner from invading the surface world on occasion. Maybe they watched Octopi do some drum solos when they got bored. Stingray's opening episode isn't a pilot in the American television sense of the word. This wasn't created to sell the series, rather the series format had already been agreed upon by Lou Grade, Anderson's primary money man, and ordered to a full series before the pilot had been completed. This approach was situation normal for Anderson and Grade. They sought lucrative network and syndication deals, but their shows were of such high expense that they needed a full season commitment to eliminate the making of a costly opening episode that ultimately didn't go anywhere. Much later, US TV network the WB would adopt this approach for both Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel, which both had presentation maids rather than full pilots. Again, Anderson was ahead of the curve. Had he marketed Space 1999 or UFO in the syndicated teleboom of 1988, both shows would probably have run for years. 
Series lead Troy Tempest was designed to look like actor James Garner and voiced by Don Mason. His sidekick, Phones, was voiced by Robert Easton. And although both men had lengthy careers, neither worked on Anderson projects again. Ray Barrett, who played Commander Shaw and did the opening narration, Stand by for action, also worked on Thunderbirds as John Tracy. The biggest names in the cast were Lois Maxwell, who played Atlanta, and David Graham, who provided numerous voices. Maxwell is, of course, best known for being Miss Moneypenny to three different James Bonds, and Graham is immortalised forever as Parker, yes, my lady, amongst others on Thunderbirds. Jerry and Sylvia Anderson wrote the first episode, and it was directed by Alan Petillo. The titular craft is yet another example of exemplary Anderson design work. It's a sleek design, clearly fast and manoeuvrable, and was on every kid's wish list that year for the dinky toy. The opening is thrilling and scurry, an Anderson hallmark. A giant fish vehicle attacks a World Navy submarine, and the close-up of the eye of the giant fish reveals two scurry-looking fish people operating. Stingray is launched to find out what has happened. Tower from Stingray... Okay, Troy, this is the brief. Proceed full speed to position 1800 miles west-northwest, 2400 reference 4, and investigate unaccounted destruction of world security patrol vessel Sea Probe. PWOR. All of Anderson's other hallmarks are here as well. In fact, this is where they started to take shape. Cool vehicles, the idea that the world has put aside its differences and abandoned nationalism to become a world organisation, cool acronyms and dynamic characters. Of course, for a world peacekeeping organisation, WASP packs a shit ton of heat. Anderson was also one of the first television producers to embrace visuals rather than his shows being a play on film. Many of the scenes are pure eye candy and the show is all the better for it. The movements of the craft are all very sleek with bubbles and underwater fauna being used to hide the strings. Although, let's be honest, the strings never bothered me as a kid and they don't really bother me now. Interestingly, when Network Distribution were doing the HD digital cleanup of Anderson's shows, they asked the audience if they wanted the strings removed. A relatively easy task nowadays. Audiences responded that... Whilst they would be fine with this for one episode as an experiment, they wouldn't want the strings removed from every episode. Derek Meddings, as usual, provided excellent special effects work and used a sleight-of-hand cheat to achieve its underwater battles. The show was filmed as normal, but a thin tank was constructed and then filled with water. This tank was then placed in front of the set, giving the illusion that Stingray was under the sea. In a daring move for the first episode, Stingray is quickly rendered impotent after an attack leaves it crashed on the ocean bed. Wasp HQ is put on high alert, which involves lots of buildings sinking into the floor to be replaced by high-tech equipment. I'm not sure that this makes a ton of sense, but by God it's exciting. Kids across the land and across generations have sat dumbfounded. Rendered unconscious in the explosion, Tempest awakens to the beautiful sight of Marina, a slave girl mermaid, and their captor, Titan, an aquaphibian and leader of the underwater city of Titanica. Marina bears a striking resemblance to Jennifer Garner, and Titan looks like the Green Goblin. Conveniently, Titan monologues a bit. I must congratulate you. You are the first Terranian to set eyes on one of the people of the underwater world. It seems so fantastic. I can hardly believe it. Believe it? Look above you. 5,000 fathoms of water. And all around us, the mighty ocean. You see, Turanian, 
There is no escape. But why are you holding me as a prisoner? I'm a member of the World Aquanaut Security Patrol. Our job is to investigate, not to fight. Maybe so, but we'll soon find out. Don't worry, Terranian. You will be given a fair trial. <laughs> For some reason, I don't believe him. The trial is quickly convened, and Titan tells Tempest that the god, a fish that looks like Boris Johnson, will look at him for a certain amount of time. If he looks away, Tempest is innocent. If not, death. This doesn't seem like a proper trial to me, and I have to question the validity of this form of justice. Unsurprisingly, Tempest is found guilty and sent to the underwater prison of Aquatraz. Don't you just love these names? Poor Phones doesn't even get a trial. He's sentenced just for being with Troy. Guilty by association, I guess. Again, I'm not sure that this is really a fur and equitable trial, but as Phones and Tempest are rushed to the prison, Marina switches sides and helps out. The Aquafibians have this weird language that sounds like they are gargling Alka-Seltzer, but Marina understands their language. Conveniently, she also understands English, and she manages to free Tempest and Phones, and they all escape. They steal the giant fisher vessel and tow Stingray back to HQ. With Marina now part of the crew, the series is set up in the tag. Well, I guess that's about it, folks. It sure was some experience, and all I can say is, I'm sure glad we made it before the rocket attack. Well, it's a great story. At least we know now what we're up against. Whole races of people living under the sea. Some bad, and I guess some good. Some to help, some to fight. But the part I don't understand is how you managed to fix a line to Stingray without your underwater equipment. <laughs> well, that's the one part of the story I haven't told you about. Commander Shore, Lieutenant, Atlanta, meet Marina the latest recruit to the World Aquanaut Security Patrol. Marina, well, what do you know? Yeah, well, uh, as I were saying, at least we know what we're up against. Well, I certainly know what I'm up against. <laughs> <laughs> Characterization is actually quite subtle and pretty thin, to be fair. Troy Tempest is the hero, phones his snarky partner. Commander Shaw and his daughter Atlanta are in charge, and Atlanta, Tempest and Marina all form a love triangle. Commander Shaw, being in an electronic wheelchair, gives him some interesting backstory. However, the opening is fast-paced, and there's enough meat on the bones to flesh these characters out in later episodes. Sadly, the brevity of the show means there are no resolutions to the main stories. Titan is never mentioned again after Foam's Tempest and Marina escape, and the Aquafibians are also left in the dust. Or the foam, as the case may be. Wasp having an enemy vessel straight out of the gate would seem to give them a tactical advantage, but this is also ignored in this presentation. Ultimately, this means that this doesn't really satisfy as a story on its own. But let's be honest, I'm in my 40s. I didn't give a shit about any of that as a kid. I just knew that I liked the characters, I loved Stingray itself, and was thoroughly enraptured by the action and the effects. As a kid, Stingray was probably my favourite Anderson show, largely because when I first saw it, I was the exact right age to appreciate it. 
Captain Scarlet is the better show because that holds up under adult eyes, but Stingray is still a glorious double shot of nostalgia straight to the veins. It is also, crucially, still hugely enjoyable. If you have young kids, you could do a lot worse than show them Anderson's stuff. They're still immense fun and quite challenging, more so than the dreck fed to them on the Disney Channel. Some of the loose threads from this episode were followed up in The Master Plan, the 23rd episode of the show, written by Alan Fennell. In this episode, Titan finds that he is losing his grip of his subjects, and all because he has failed to stop Stingray and allowed them to take away his slave. Titan vows to recapture Marina and bring the undersea races to heel. To this end, Titan launches his Terror Fish, which is the actual name of the funny fish vehicle, to bring Stingray down. As usual, he fails, but this was his plan. It was all a distraction to poison Troy Tempest. The nefarious fiend! Titan offers to cure Tempest, but only if Wasp will give Marina back to him. One of my favourite things about this episode is Titan's wonderful pulpy dialogue. Nothing can stop me now, he proclaims at one point without irony. Of course, this is because we didn't really do that kind of irony back in 1965. The episode itself, though, is thrilling. Marineville is on red alert due to the poisonous attack on Tempest, and Marina is given her own agency. Commander Shaw forbids Wasp from giving Marina up, and she ignores him, taking the decision to return into her own hands. The question is raised by Atlanta as to how they know Titan will keep his word. This is a valid question, but the villain claims to have a sense of honour, and he sends the antidote as soon as Marina returns to him. However, this too is part of Titan's plan. Killing Troy Tempest outright isn't what he wants. To regain respect, he needs to have Marina back, capture Tempest, and destroy Stingray. But this is his undoing. I kind of think it would be easier to destroy Stingray if he'd let Tempest die, because, you know... Without its pilot, I imagine Stingray would be easier to take out, but whatever. What do I know? I'm not the ruler of an undersea kingdom, nor am I a despot, as far as I know. Still, Tempest has an ace in the hole. He and Phones won't be returned to Titanica in Stingray. No, 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 no. Rather, they will return in a terror fish. I had hoped when I was watching this that this was the one that they captured in the first episode because that would have been a really nice touch of continuity, but sadly this was not to be. That level of continuity was not what was required in the early 1960s. This terrorfish was knocked up really quickly by Marineville's engineers and as such it has no weapons and a piss-poor engine capacity, but it's a nifty riff on the Trojan horse plot. Interestingly, the original Battlestar Galactica would do a riff on this in their season finale, The Hand of God. Seeing Titan treat Marina as a slave and as such beneath his notice is deeply unpleasant and a far more hissable characteristic than his spouting of platitudes and his evil plan. Seeing his mistreatment of another is far more insidious. Both these Stingray episodes are of an exceptionally high quality. I reckon the reason Anderson's stuff was, and still is, so well received is, despite its simplistic black and white morality, these stories work as exciting action and adventure romps with great effects and fun characters. There's no way any nine or ten year olds in the audience weren't sucked into this, and I'll wager a number of their dads were as well. It's proper family entertainment, 
giving the kids heroes to root for, villains to hiss at, and supreme visuals. At a tight 24 minutes, the episodes don't overstay their welcome, although I could have done without the comedy ending. Titan is a pretty good villain in and of himself, but this neutering at the conclusion makes him less scurry somehow, which, you know, may have been the point. As with all Anderson shows, though, what makes them fascinating to watch is the sheer amount of creativity on display. Everything in this show was built from scratch. The puppets, the clothes, the vehicles, the sets, the props, all designed and built for this show. And while some of it would be recycled later for Captain Scarlet and Thunderbirds, most everything is unique. This fast cutting of the opening sequence prefigures MTV by 20 years, and even after all this time, Stingray is pleasant to watch. As I said the last time I did an Anderson episode, I really do feel Anderson was George Lucas before George Lucas, and it's a shame he felt that he never really received the respect he deserved. Everything Lucas did with Star Wars, from state-of-the-art special effects to a stirring score to merchandise opportunities, was on display in all of Anderson's work. The major difference being Anderson never achieved financial autonomy. Stingray clocked up 39 episodes, costing well over a million dollars, an incredibly expensive series at that time. It is still fondly remembered by all who saw it. Every week, Stingray would close out to a different theme tune, a ballad devoted to the mermaid Marina. Here for your delectation and delight is that song as well. This always used to get stuck in my head as a kid. <laughs> Marina, aqua marina, what are these strange enchantments that start whenever you're near? Marina, aqua marina, why can't you whisper the words that my heart is longing to hear? Your magic to me, a beautiful mystery. I'm certain to fall, I know, because you enthrall me so. Aquamarina Why don't you say That you'll always stay Close to my heart Okay, let's delve into the Bag, should we? The Palace of Glittering Delights is an amazing podcast, which isn't a statement from me, although I wholeheartedly agree with it. <laughs> a little bit of a self-effacing chuckle. Alistair Jakes has emailed in. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Alistair. I got to this podcast when, after having finished watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine, I was in want of a podcast to binge on and discovered listening to The Prophets. From there, I discovered your show. At first, I cherry-picked episodes. I was born in the 90s, and I'm not on the whole a fan of comics. I am a Doctor Who and Farscape fan, preferring the 90s Doctor Who books and cynical Blake 7 to the cheese of 80s American TV and four-colour superheroics. I like both, mate. You know. Recently, however, I decided to replay Pokemon Sapphire, a game from my youth and wanted accompaniment. 
Like uncertainly slipping into a pool, I find myself haphazardly testing the waters of your podcast, trying first the properties I knew, the Hulk, Superman and Quantum Leap, and then onto the properties I became familiar with through listening to your show, like The Six Million Dollar Man. It's wild, Steve, wild, and Erwolf. Indeed, I am now absolutely in love with the Erwolf theme, although I'm certain the version of the show I have in my head, after listening to your podcasts, is better than the real thing. Probably. <laughs> Finally, though, with a heavy heart, I came to the thing I was dreading, the Spider-Man comics episodes. I watched the Raimi Spider-Man episodes at university and saw the first of the reboot ones with Gwen Stacy and the Lizard. I have Spider-Man origin fatigue the same way I have Batman origin fatigue. The Spider-Man of the films is angst, melodrama and plot contrivances. Maybe Tom Holland's Spider-Man is better, though given certain notable elements of Infinity War, I doubt that. Certain critics are raving over into the Spideyverse, but I am quietly disinterested. I love your voice, though, and I needed stuff to accompany me as I played Pokemon. I was won over. A big reason I can't stand comics is the art is a tad uncanny for me, as the nature of the beats means that anatomic features shift subtly and limbs warp between panels. So hearing the Spider-Man comics summarised and analysed really works. It gets at the beat of what works and leaves what I dislike about the comics. You've won me over, good sir, and I find myself eagerly listening to episode after episode on the comics, especially as Murray Jane has now shown up, and she was the best part of the Raimi films, in my opinion. I understand your dislike of the idea that MJ already knows Peter's secret identity, but the secret identity angst was one of the elements of MJ's character in the films that didn't work for me, so her knowing all along removes that niggle. And now eagerly await more episodes covering Spider-Man comics, even if I do know that eventually the Clone Saga nonsense starts up. So thank you, your podcast truly is a delight, and I hope for more. Could I cheeky enough and ask for coverage of Doctor Who and Farscape? My favourite Doctors, by the way, are the chess masterly Seventh Doctor. Oh dear. And the equally manipulative Seventh Doctor. Should that be two different Doctors, Alistair? Get back in touch and let me know. My crush on Amy Pond does not hurt my appreciation of Matt Smith's run, it has to be said. Ginger's rock. Well, thank you, Alistair. I'm glad that at the very least I was able to get you to, to enjoy Spider-Man through, uh, through, through me, if you're not going to read the books. I, I do try to impart my enthusiasm for those comics through the show. Um, regarding Farscape, I would very much love to do something with Farscape. It's just a case of what do I want to do with it. Uh, I have the whole show on DVD, and it's also just dropped, dropped sorry, on Amazon Prime. So if you've never seen Farscape, I do heartily uh, endorse it, because it is such a batshit crazy show that you can't help but love it. And the puppets are brilliant in it. I love the puppets. So, um, so I'm tempted to do something with Farscape, but exactly what form that will take... I haven't yet decided, but I've wanted to do something with Farscape since the show started. Uh, with regards to the Doctor, the Seventh Doctor is my least favourite. But uh, I am currently working on an episode about Remembrance of the Daleks. And I'll just let that sit there. And uh, we'll see when that happens. Because as with everything, these things take shape in their own time. But I'm, I'm currently doing something with that. The reason I haven't done a lot of Doctor Who on this show is that... I kind of felt that was Sean Engel's corner of, of Two True Freaks, really. And Sean was a good friend of mine who sadly passed away far too early. Um, and we carried on doing Listen to the Prophets, largely because Sean started that show with us and were determined to finish it. But I always felt for a long time I'd stay away from Doctor Who because in my head, whenever I did talk about Doctor Who on a podcast, it was normally with Sean. And if you want to go back on the Two True Freaks feed, there is a show called Who True Freaks, which is Sean 
in most every episode talking to somebody else about Doctor Who, and I'm on a couple of them with him. And like I say, it, it, it felt that that was his corner of the world. But, um, you know, I can't not cover Doctor Who. Doctor Who's kind of in my DNA. So I, I probably will do a little bit more of it as, as we go along. And as I say, I am working on Remembrance of the Daleks. Um, that's it. Thank you for emailing Alistair. I'm very glad you enjoyed the show. Don't be a stranger. Our next email is from Luke Giaconetti. Listen to me carefully, because I'm only going to say this once. Coffee. Black. Star Trek Voyager seasons four and five. Ensign Leyland. Ensign! Pretty sure I'm a lieutenant by now, dude. I was very happy to see your second Voyager episode hit the feed recently. As we discussed in previous emails, I was a big fan of Voyager right from the launch and was eager to hear more of your thoughts on your roadmap rewatch. I'll readily agree with you that, despite my affection for the early seasons of the show, season four really is when Voyager hits its stride in terms of writing, acting and production. With the trimming of the early misses, namely the Kazon as the big bad, the writers and the cast both getting truly comfortable with the characters and the continually decreasing cost of special effects, Voyager was humming along quite nicely. This was coupled with a continued reliance on the show from the network, as Voyager was the marquee, not Mackey, show on the UPN, and as such was the go-to for rating stunts and sweeps weeks. Now, looking back on this period, there's a certain amount of angst for me as a viewer, as there always is when a show we enjoy goes through changes, especially as I was still a teenager at the time. The exit of Kez and the entrance of Seven of Nine admittedly rubbed me the wrong way. I looked at the change in a very cynical way, ditching the cute pixie girl character for a stacked sci-fi vixen, who then became essentially the main focus of the show for the majority of the season. It all seemed cut and dried to me. A network-driven change to vamp up the show and appeal to red-blooded middle American men who were staying away from UPN in droves. UPN had the ignoble distinction of being sixth out of six over-the-air broadcast networks in the US at the time, behind even the WB, and the only show of note on the network around the season 4 debut was Voyager itself. Voyager was the only show with any staying power on that network until the debut of WWF Smackdown in April 1999 at the tail end of Voyager's fifth season. To the point that Dwayne The Rock Johnson had an early acting role in a season 6 episode, Sunketsi. In retrospect, my cynical teenage viewpoints were not really borne out. While no one will ever convince me that any choice but blonde bombshell was ever considered for the casting, and that Catsuit was the first and only note given to wardrobe, the character Seven of Nine gave the series a shot in the arm. And honestly, why wouldn't the writing team want to write about the shiny new character and how she interacts with the other established crew? So naturally, she would get the lion's share of attention. And given the evolution of the relationship between Captain Janeway and Seven, in retrospect, the whole Enterprise, I see what you did there, seems quite forward-looking. It's not controversial to say that Seven of Nine was a boon to the show, and Voyager would not have been as good as it ended up being without her. Apropos of nothing, Jessica Lien eventually went kind of nuts with multiple runnings with the law, while Jerry Ryan is a beloved character actress who has popped up in lots of other shows. The universe, even the Delta Quadrant, is not a fur or just place, it seems. I have put together an expanded version of the Den of Geek Voyager roadmap, and at some point in the interdeterminate future, I will sit down with it and begin my own rewatch of the show. Until then, I'll just live vicariously through the palace. Really enjoyed this episode, and cannot wait to hear your thoughts on the final two seasons of Voyager. I'll go and put the coffee on. Luke. As ever... Thank you, Luke. That was quite interesting because I know bugger all about UPN, as I said. Uh, and finally tonight, Professor Allen has emailed in Andy. 
I very much enjoyed your Glittering Delights episode 111 about tie-in novels and novelizations. I recently reread Splinter of the Mind's Eye, and that must have sparked something in me, because between cleaning up my brother-in-law's place in preparation for him to move, and the used bookstore I just discovered in the town where I teach, I have loaded up on this type of paperback. So my stack now has a pair of Babylon 5 novels, two Battlestar Galactica classic series novels, and five Star Trek novels from the original and next generation. I'm excited to dig in. Great episode, keep up the good work, Professor Allen, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, and the darkness to light well thank you very much it was very good to hear from alan luke and alistair if you want to email in hey kids comics at virginmedia.com i'll get a palace email address one day next time not got a clue could be anything oh no i know exactly what it's gonna be sorry because i've already written it it's the next chapter of the john ramita spider-man stuff so alistair will look forward to that if no one else uh see you next time and remember everything's gonna be all right